Yeah, last week we and we're continuing today on the this overall theme of of Jesus' authority and Jesus' power over death. And last week we're looking at it in the context of his resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. And today we take that theme into John 11 and, and look at this story of Lazarus' death and resurrection. Woody Allen once said about death that. He said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) And I think we all have some sort of fear of death, whether it be on a large scale or or a small scale. We all have some sort of fear of death. It might be about how it's actually going to end. It might be about the sort of physical pain that I'm going to have to endure. It might be about seeing the ones that we love and seeing them hurt because of what's happening to me. But I'd imagine that all of us in in one way or another would have some sort of fear about how this life is going to end. And you know, even when we get to those very last days, we, we do all that we can to hang on to life. With the technology that we have, we, we, we do all that we can to cling to to life. We, we do all we can for our loved ones just to have one more conversation, to have one more hug. What we'd do just to be able to say hello one more time. Just late last year, uh, my grandma, my mum's mum was in hospital at Monash and things happened pretty quickly and she was in the ICU, um, unconscious and we didn't know if she could hear us or not. It was a Monday morning when I found out, went from work early and met mum down there uh, with aunts and uncles and sat around her and that was the feeling. We'd do anything just for another, another day of, of, of talking to her and laughing with her. And we were blessed, you know, because we were praying that time. We didn't know about her faith and we're still unsure about her faith but we were praying at that time just for another opportunity to share the gospel with her. And what a blessed opportunity it was that the next day she was joking around and talking about Collingwood's prospects for 2016 and so you see where I get it from. Um, a whole, a whole, uh, my whole idea about death and my thought process about about death changed so much just just over a year ago. It was 2000, uh, February, I think mid-February 2015. This terrible image appeared all over the world. 21 Egyptian Christians were led to a Libyan beach uh, and beheaded, brutally murdered by terrorists or whoever, whatever you want to call them. And it brought so much more meaning about this verse in Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ. To live is all about Christ. And to die is to gain. But I'm glad today's title isn't about death, it's the end, or death, the horrible end of life, or but about Jesus' power and authority over death. That Jesus has conquered death. And we come to John 11 and the background, a bit of background to this, this passage is that, uh, we're drawing near, nearer to the end of Jesus' public ministry. 
He has declared himself as God. He's made the statements, I am, which we'll look at a little bit later. And because he's declared himself as God, the Pharisees and the, and the, the, the religious leaders are, are, have been looking to kill him, to stone him. They've been looking to capture him and seize him. But his time hasn't come and he slips away and gets away from Judea and, and, uh, and makes his way um, about a day's, a day's travel from where we're talking about here in Bethany. And we come to verse 1 and it says there that there's a problem. The message gets to Jesus that the man he loves, the brother of Mary and Martha, is really sick. That there's a problem. Lazarus is sick. You know, we have all sorts of problems. Problems that are just this big and problems that are this big. Problems that just take minutes, maybe hours or a day to solve or work through. Then we have problems that just seem to never go away and they might be with us for years. We have all sorts of problems. But God's word offers all sorts of promises. In fact, in God's word we conservatively can say that there are over three and a half thousand promises. And so I say to you this morning, encourage you that whenever you're facing a problem, the first and best place to turn to is God's word. And Jesus offers a promise to the problem. He says, this will not end in death. This will not end in death. This is for the glory of God. This is for the glory of God's Son. But it's interesting to note that Jesus didn't go straight away. He didn't hear the news and sort of pack everything up and head off straight away. Which tells me that God's timing is perfect. It was actually four days that Lazarus was dead by the time Jesus and the disciples got there to Bethany. Um, Last year I was praying at night time with Mackenzie and she said, oh, you know, I've, got, I've got to pray for my big toe, it really hurts. I said, okay, you know, so she did a prayer and she prayed for a big toe. She said, amen. She said, that really, still really hurts. I said, well, God doesn't answer the prayer sometimes straight away. I said, that's the way we think, isn't it? Sometimes that we have our own agenda, we have our own schedule. We have our own timing that we want things done. But God's timing is perfect. And Jesus goes on and tells the plan to the disciples. His plan is that we're going to head back to Judea. Going to go back to the place where we just came from, where he was nearly stoned to death, where they wanted to kill him and capture him. And the disciples' response to that is, well, Jesus, but, but. And I, you know, and I thought, well, also, 
You know, and I'm saying we because I'm hoping I'm not alone just in these situations, but when we are called to something and when God is urging us to do something, we can often say but. When Dad told me, I think it was a couple of years ago now, that he was looking to pastor a church, a small church just out of Ballarat, I think one of the first things I said to him was, actually, was but. I said, but what about the businesses you've got to run, Dad? That's my inheritance. No, <laughs> I didn't actually say that. And you're like, and you know, I think it was just over 60, and I was, but you're not a spring chicken anymore. You're going to have the energy. Can doubt God's timing. Can doubt God's plans. And the disciples are saying, but. And they seem to have legitimate excuses. And the first excuse was that they feared death. This is the place that we've just said, this is the place we've just come from and they wanted to stone you. Why would we go back there? Jesus responds, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. Really what Jesus is saying is that the will of God is walking in the light of God. Jesus knows that God wants him to go to this place in order to raise Lazarus from the dead, in order to bring glory to him. That people's faith may increase, that people will believe. And he says, people with stones and rocks and trying to capture me aren't going to get in the way of what God has already planned to happen. If we walk in the will of God and do as he has commanded, we walk in light. Doesn't make it easy, doesn't mean it's going to be pain free or painless, it's just promises that when we walk in, with, when we walk in the in the will of God and do what he is asking us to do. We walk in light and no one can stop what God has planned. And the opposite to that is that we do our own thing. And when we do our own thing, we walk in darkness. When we do our own thing, we stumble and we collapse and life can fall apart pretty quickly. And so Jesus goes on to say, I'm going to wake Lazarus up. And the disciples bring excuse number two along. Well, if he sleeps, he'll get better. I've got the remedy for you, Jesus. Simple. Well, he's fallen asleep. That's great. He'll be fine in you know, 10, 12 hours. Let him sleep in. Of course, his blunt response is, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there with you when he was just sick because now your faith may increase even more. You may believe And as Raf shared this morning about Thomas, I agree with you, Raf. Like, he's a bit harshly done by, isn't he? Doubting Thomas is how we refer to him. Here is Thomas's first, the sort of first time we, I think we actually meet Thomas and first words of Thomas. 
He says to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Some commentators might dramatise that and sort of say, well, Thomas is sort of saying that like this, come on guys, let's go so we can also die with him. But no, I don't think that's the attitude. I think that Thomas's attitude here is one that we can adapt. He speaks with leadership. He speaks with courage. Let us follow him. And it might cost us our life, but let's die with Jesus. This is an attitude that we can take into life this next week. Are we his followers or his disciples? What are we prepared to give up? Because he asks for our life, everything we have. There was a time, um, back, back in this time, there was a theory, a bit of a conspiracy theory about the dead. There was this theory that the spirit of the dead would hover over a body for perhaps up to three days. That there was still this chance a body could be resurrected, could come back to life. But after that three days, that spirit would depart and it was definitely all over. And just perhaps that was on the mind of, of Jesus as he gets to the body and four days, it says, four days had passed. He knew what he was about to do. There wasn't going to be any distractions or any murmurs about why this was happening apart from the fact that he is powerful and has authority over death. It would seem that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were a prominent family um, they had many, it says, many who had come to mourn. Uh, a funeral would, would, would go on for a, a quite a number of days, perhaps a week. And in this instance, there were um, professional mourners. You thought you had a tough job. Try being a professional mourner. Uh, and they, they would come and, and they would wail loudly. They would, they would be with the family. Wherever they went, they would go with them. And they would be crying out loudly, perhaps uh, in, when Mary and Martha couldn't cry anymore uh, to, to sympathise with them. And so there's quite a large gathering at their house, following them around where they go. And when Jesus approaches, Martha goes out to meet him. And you can sense the grief and the hurt in Martha's voice. Lord, if only. If only you had been here, he would be alive. We can have if only moments with God, can't we? Jim Elliot and Nate Saint, you might, uh, a quite well known story 
um, with the Orca Indians in the jungles of Ecuador in the 1950s. Uh, the five missionaries landed in 1956 in January on a little strip of beach uh, near the jungle where these Orca Indians tribe lived. According to the Times magazine, the Orca Indians were the worst people on earth. Three in four Orca Indian men would die from murder in some sort of tribal warfare. Murder was an everyday event for the Orca Indians. And over a a period of time, these guys had been flying over and communicating with them, sending messages down with loudspeakers, sending gifts down in baskets. And they'd actually received some gifts back and they took that on as real positive feedback. And this unreached people who had no contact with the civilised world, well, they thought that this was the time now to reach out to them and tell them about Jesus Christ. And so these five missionaries landed their little aeroplane on a bit of beach not far from where the Orca Indians live. But as the well-known story goes, and it's actually been made into a movie in 2006, those five missionaries were murdered by the Orca Indians. Elizabeth Elliot, the the wife of Jim, and uh, Rachel Saint was the sister of Nate, could be excused for having some if-only moments. If only they hadn't landed that day. If only they weren't called to those horrible people. And I don't know if they did or if they didn't. But what I do know is that they went on to be heavily involved in that ministry of reaching to those Orca Indian tribe, leading them to Jesus Christ. Many who actually were involved in the murdering of the loved ones came to know Jesus Christ as their Saviour and Lord. God's timing is perfect. God's timing is perfect and he will be glorified. Martha's faith, you might think, is weak but as I read on, you can see that her faith is still reasonably strong. It hasn't really wavered. She says, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But Jesus makes a major statement in this key verse where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus continues to claim that he is God. The I am statements that he makes and has made here clearly tell people that he is claiming to be the God of Abraham and the God of Moses. That he has always been existing. That he is and will always be. At its very core it 
it, it, it aligns itself with the name of Yahweh. It's very core definition, describing a self-existing one. And it especially associates itself with that name I am, with God's holiness and his anger, his righteous anger towards sin. And that's why just previously they had tried to stone him because they said you claim to be God. And as you look at the eight I am statements from Jesus, um, you can through the Gospels, but in John you can find these eight I am statements. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And there's one thing if you notice about all these statements that follow this I am is the saving character of Jesus Christ. That all his statements when he claims his deity that he is God describe the saving character of our Lord that he is the resurrection and life. And this saving character and this resurrection and this salvation is only ever found in Jesus. Last week we, uh, we looked at four truths about resurrection and life and I'm not sure how many people were here last week um, and I'll put you on the spot here. Can you remember any of those four truths? I'll take one. I'll just take one of them. Anyone can remember? Humility. Humility was one. There were three others. Love was one. Revelation, a truth being revealed. And faith. And we looked at those in, in relation and the context of the resurrection of Christ, the four truths that are present at resurrection. And, and we can apply and look at those this morning in relation to the resurrection of Lazarus. Firstly, humility. Through Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry, especially we look how Jesus humbly responds to the needs of people. Here it was two women, two sisters who sent a message to the Lord. A place where he had just come from but he humbly responds. Earlier it's been a woman who was bleeding for 12 years who touched the Lord and he humbly responded. The lepers, the sick, the blind, Jesus humbly responds. He doesn't seek out the rich. He doesn't seek out the people that have status and say, what can I do for you? He humbly responds to the marginalised, the outcasts. 
Aren't you glad this morning that salvation isn't exclusively for the rich, for the powerful, but it is what Jesus has made available to the marginalised, the needy, the poor, the homeless. In fact, it will be a struggle, as you well know from the scriptures, for the rich to surrender what they possess in order to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus humbly responded to the need of Mary and Martha. Secondly, a revelation. And we spoke last week about how Jesus just opened his mouth and there was truth, there was revelation. But here with his interaction with with Martha, when Martha believes Jesus is talking about future events and Jesus said, your brother will rise again, She says, I know he will rise again in the last day. But here comes divine truth. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of the future. I'm not speaking of what's to come. I'm speaking right now as I stand in front of you. I am the resurrection and life. And there is no resurrection, there is no life except through Jesus Christ. Believe in me, Jesus said, and you will know life in the physical. You will know life with my presence as you live on this earth, even though you may die physically. You'll have purpose, you'll have meaning, a reason to live. Believe in me, and you will have spiritual life for eternity. You will never die, Jesus said, forever in his presence. Friends, this is divine truth. This is a revelation that Jesus gives to Martha and he gives to you and me this morning. Thirdly, faith. We read in verse 27... Back in verse 26, Jesus said, Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe? She said, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into this world. Martha, understanding the physical life reference and death and the spiritual life, believes by faith. Last week we read through Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and I just want to mention it again because it's just in verse 8, this well-known verse but so much truth to it. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not by works lest anyone should boast. By grace God has sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins and to be raised to life. in order 
that we may lay claim to the truth that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and Jesus Christ has conquered death. That death no longer has any victory over us. There is no sting in death because to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Because to live is to live a surrendered life to Christ with purpose and to die is to gain. To be from this body is to gain eternity in his presence. And as Jesus asked Martha, I asked this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Not by anything you can do to earn it. No amount of money can buy it. But do you believe it by faith? Fourthly, love. And there seemed to be this consensus as you read through John 11 that Jesus loved Lazarus. Now we read from the sisters that they sent a message, the one you love is sick. The Jews later on, and we'll touch on in a moment, uh, even though I think they misunderstood his tears, said, look, you can see that he loved Lazarus. And love wasn't the only reason or the sole purpose. Actually, it was to glorify God and to glorify the Son. But where there is resurrection life, there is love. And as I said, love wasn't the only emotion in play here. Verse 27, we just read about the, before we read about the deity of Christ, the Son of God. Yet now we see aspects of the humanity of Christ. In verse 33, Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews, the professional mourners, those Jews who had come along with her, also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That word troubled actually translates it and you, and you get the picture of, of, of anger and, and outrage, uh, an emotional sort of uh, uh, turmoil sort of being torn up inside emotionally. It, it's the same word later on that Jesus, it, says of, it speaks of Jesus when he sat with his disciples and spoke about the one who would betray him. It said Jesus was troubled in spirit torn up inside. So what was Jesus so torn up about? What angered our Lord in this situation? You know, he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead and he loved Lazarus. But I don't think it's the fact that Lazarus is dead is what's tearing him up because he knows just in moments he's going to be 
alive, he's going to be united with him. There's Mary and Martha who are in tears and who are hurting. But he knows that they're going to be united with their brother in moments. So I don't think it's just purely that they're hurting that he's torn up and angered about. But as the great I am surveys the scene, what does he see? As he looks and there are the disciples fearful for their lives as they follow the Saviour. There are the mourners who are, have a job to do and, and mourn and wail loudly because of the death of Lazarus and the way it's affected Mary and Martha and they're screaming and crying out loud. There's the Mary and Martha themselves hurting grief, trauma for the loss of their brother and there's a tomb with a dead man inside. Death. And as Jesus through whom all things have been created and by him all things hold together looks and surveys the scene the consequences of sin which is death and because of death this is what he sees suffering, pain and grief and not in a loud manner like the mourners were crying and perhaps the sisters but in a quiet manner it tears him up inside and the Lord weeps for what he sees. The consequences of sin, angers and troubles our Saviour. With that emotion, with those feelings he comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he tells some people whether it's his disciples or some other people who were just around to take away the stone and there's this huge cry of people shouting out he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead no, no there's not in fact, Martha's just worried about the odour that's going to come out of that term. He gives thanks to God the Father, fully aware of who is listening and not quietly but loudly so everyone can hear just who is in charge here. Everyone can hear why this is happening. As one commentator says, he didn't just say, come out. Such is the authority and power of our Lord 
the dead across the whole earth would have raised from the dead. He said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Been dead for four days. I don't know what a dead body looks like after four days. I'd imagine not in great shape. Ribs might be showing. Skin would be hanging down. Probably pretty pale, pretty cold. But I don't imagine that's what Lazarus would have looked like when he came out. Because when Jesus Christ gives life, he gives life to its fullest. I would imagine he'd be warm blood pumping through his body. He'd probably look better than what he did when he went in. I love the way Jesus used people. When he came out, Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Imagine the story that those people would have had to tell their families and their communities of that day they were there when Jesus asked them to roll the stone away to take the grave clothes off Lazarus. They couldn't raise Lazarus from the dead but they could roll the stone away. They could take his grave clothes off And this morning we have a role to play. We have a purpose with this life. God can do amazing things with us if we surrender ourselves to him. If we're prepared to give whatever he asks of us in order that we could be used to make disciples of this community, of this city and this world. To be surrendered people, willing and available to do his will. Lord and God, we, as we sung this morning, we stand forgiven at the cross. Thank you for your promises, God, promises in your word, promises of salvation, promises that you will be with us wherever we are as we go from this place. Would we be mindful that we have a purpose to make disciples of this community, the workplaces where we are, the schools that we are in, the families that we belong to and the world that we live in. But we don't do it alone because you promised to be with us until the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.